Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. If you have been following our local news, uh, you no doubt know about the tragedy of the Drake Hotel fire, uh, the devastating fire that swept through Uh, an apartment for uh, low-income and homeless folks uh, Christmas Day, Christmas morning. And there were more than – I in one story I did, I said 200. It's actually more like 250 people who are without a place to live as a result of that. There were some people who were paying, you know, rents as as much as they could. There were other people who were there temporarily. But obviously it's a devastating situation. One – there are so many people that have stepped up. First of all, the public – All of you out there listening have stepped up. There were donations immediately on Christmas Day of of key items like formula and diapers and clothing. And and now people have also been contributing money, which is what they definitely need right now. But also there have been institutions that really have been stepping up. And one of those institutions is the First Covenant Church in Minneapolis. It's a a church that's – if you've ever been to uh, U.S. Bank Stadium, you might have passed it. It's next to that Eric the Red Bar That church has really stepped it up, and they are still housing, I believe, more than 60 people as a result of that fire. But the person who would know for sure is Pastor Dan Collison, who is joining us right now. Pastor Dan, how are you? I'm doing okay. Okay, well, great to talk with you, and you were so nice to talk to us uh, earlier this week when I was doing the story for television. How are things going uh, at at your church right now? How many folks do you have? You know, the numbers... Uh, are sort of a range of numbers, and depending on the time of the day, and it sort of reflects the diversity of individuals and families who were at the Drake. And what I mean by that is we estimate between 40 and as high as 70 at uh, any given time, and it may be it may be like 50, 50 individuals by like midnight, but then some other folks come in at one in the morning, and some work second and third shift, and so then. There's some who are sleeping during the day, and and the, the, the piece of this that's really interesting that's very hard to understand is just that there are, you know, 250 or so people, including children. A lot of them uh, work. They, they go to a lot of different places for their work, and some uh, are, of course, uh, relying on friends. Uh, and, and their network to maybe they'll sleep there at night, but then they come back to the First Covenant building to make sure they're connected to social service and to make sure that they understand right. what are the best opportunities. So it's it's almost like it's many things. The First Covenant building site, the Red Cross disaster humanitarian space is like sleeping for some, uh, resources for others, connection points for even others. And it's all combinations of that. Right. And Pastor Dan, you, you touched on something. I think one of the misconceptions here about the folks that were living at the Drake Hotel is that none of them work. And that's simply not true. Oh, it's completely false. Yeah. Uh, I don't know all of the numbers, but uh, a significant amount. In fact, there were a couple, you know, that, that worked downtown and they continue to work the, the day of the fire and the day after the fire. And 
uh, yet still are, you know, have to scramble to sort of found, find, 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 figure out their next step for housing. Um, and uh, that's a really challenging part. Imagine if you had to continue to work while you were trying to sort out where you're going to sleep at night and what, what's going to be your next apartment or place. And, to and take care of your family. Right. And, and make sure they're okay. Absolutely. And that's just what got to be very, very difficult. And there were some, like there was a construction worker who was gone all week, came back, and he had heard about the fire, and then he came back, and it was like all gone. We, so we had to track down oh. a construction coat for him so he could go to work this last Thursday, um, you know, because there was nothing. Like he had nothing uh, ready for his first day of work back after a break. Wow. It, 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 that, is, that is so tough. Uh, and it, I think it really illustrates what we have been hearing about from a few elected leaders, a few civic leaders, people like, such as yourself in the faith community, that there really is an affordable housing crisis. In, in Minnesota. Correct. And, and when it comes to particularly those who are right in the bubble of being able to afford housing and, of course, food and transportation, the Drake was a place of provision for them. And it was, ex- it was a, what I would call extremely affordable housing. And so with that, all of those units gone, um, you know, that's the trick right now. As I began to talk with some of our Drake residents and guests in the building, uh, some of them make too much money for that apartment building. Not, you know, they don't have enough money to support that rent, and so it's this now. It's this big matching challenge of people having the right income, not too much income, but enough income that even the idea of deposits and you know, and actually having things replaced in their house. I mean, that seems to be now we signal through the generosity of everybody, like we can take care of that. The biggest puzzle is. How do we match the person to the right apartment that they can afford or qualify for? Uh, well, Pastor, Ann, let me ask you, for those out there who are listening who say that, that they've maybe they've helped a little or they haven't helped yet, they'd like to do something, what, what can people do to help? Well, I mean, at this point, it really is about the financial undergirding of each of these individual, individuals and families because, um, you know, I, I, I know there's a, a, a growing sum of money that's been collected uh, but as we now spend the next several days, maybe even a couple of weeks, literally one by one by one, family by family by family, each individual and family is going to, first of all, uh, need to figure out how do they replace what they lost, which is tricky. I've learned that some of the Drake residents, you know, they didn't have a photograph of their items. They didn't have insurance. Some were just staying there a couple nights and everything was gone. So they wow. have to replace things. Uh, and then, there, of course, there's the deposits. Uh, that you need to get to an apartment, but then there's also furnishing the apartment. And so those three things, replace, uh, move in, furnishing, deposits, those are the big things. And that's a lot of money when you talk about 250 individuals or right. uh, families with some of those. Right. And and it's, you know, the apartments, and it's, I, I constantly, you know, as you drive around downtown, I work downtown and you, you're, you're, Pastor Dan is, is a, a bicyclist. So he's, if you see the guy with the um, kind of tall guy with, um, you know, you got the yellow reflective coating vests on and all the safety gear. It might just be Pastor Dan Collison from uh, First Covenant biking past you. But there are, as I bike around and as I walk around, drive around downtown, you see so many apartment buildings going up. And, and it, it seems like there's such a disconnect here. I mean, it's sort of another topic, but it, it's it's hard to believe that we've got so many working people who really can't find a place to live and, and who need a place to live so desperately. And this was a place that that did that. And that's what's so tragic here. 
Right. It, it's And you're pointing out a really interesting dynamic about downtown and why I have been on this really big, uh, uh, I don't know what to call it, just like campaign to be able to get more affordable housing downtown, more subsidized affordable downtown, because the cost of land is high. There's been a big push to downtown. It's been thrilling to see the residential population grow and see new housing units and products come online. And what this has revealed is that for those who actually will save money by being close to their work, I mean, we have 200,000 people that work downtown of all kinds of varieties of professions and work. And so if you don't have to have a car, that saves a lot of money for families. And so the trick is, though, housing is very expensive. Right. Most of the new housing that's built is out of the reach of the, of the individuals and families that lived at the Drake. It's very expensive. Right. Very expensive. Uh, you know, it, it's sort of startling, you know, to even hear some of the prices. I mean, it it, it really is. Um, in terms of, you know, one of the things that when you took all these folks, I believe from Bethlehem Baptist Church, uh, and said, you know, you'd have a place for them, the initial read you were given was two weeks. And you told me earlier this week, it's probably going to be longer. Yeah, we have a multi-agency meeting on Monday. Uh, we talk about this almost every day to make sure we have what we call, what I would call, it's my sort of vocabulary, a really healthy and holistic set of metrics that are more than just numbers. Because let's say there's only 40 people at the shelter at some point. Well, what are the 40 and what are their needs? You know, there are some folks who have developmental disabilities or are very physically frail uh, and some who have no income at all. How do we find, you know, something better than another shelter? What's the long-term solution? So we've got everybody in the room. Uh, everyone is coordinating their efforts, I think, uh, to a very high level. And what we're facing right now is, like, everyone needs to be housed. Uh, that is the goal. And it's not likely to be done with one week left. So the church is willing to extend this. Um, we're grateful for the resources to be able to undergird the work. And most importantly, you know, we need to create these sets of metrics and know exactly who is engaged in the services. There are social workers on site uh, almost every day. Of course, the Red Cross is providing all the support. But ultimately, you know, maybe when it gets down to like 10 or 15 people, that's when we can say, okay, now we can have these individuals in a hotel and it's a better form of resources and put some services in that space. That may be a decision in a week or two, or maybe it takes three or four. I don't know. I actually don't know the answer to that. But I, from day one, when I began talking with leaders and organizations said, for the church, our biggest concern is how will this, how will this come to a point of transition? It has to be one where the church is not in a place where we have to somehow invite guests to just move on. Right. And everyone I've talked to has been committed to not do that. Right. And in terms of the resources, uh, you know, there, there obviously have been people questioning how are the resources going to be distributed. Are you satisfied with the way the Minneapolis Foundation, which is you know, sort of spearheading, spearheading the fundraising effort, as well as the Red Cross, you know, two really great organizations, are, are organizing the, the, the fundraising effort of this? Are you satisfied with the way that that's being handled so that it does get to the people who need it, including, including you and your church, who's doing, you know, I mean, you're on the front line here. Well, I, I have a lot of respect for these organizations who have mobilized as fast as the disaster happened. And I appreciate how they're handling things and also being interactive with the community and those who feel like 
well, we need to do this differently. And by the way, some of this feels very paradoxical to me. I know we don't think in terms of paradox, but because I've had conversations with a lot of the Drake residents, they're, they're, they're dealing with trauma. They're dealing with loss. They're concerned that they're not going to get insurance because they didn't have the right paperwork for what they lost. Mm. And they're looking for resources like right now. And then you turn to the other side, all of these incredible contributions. The foundation has said repeatedly that they work with intermediaries. They work with social agencies who basically can take that whatever, $1,000 or $2,000, and by them using their network, using multiple, like it, it actually can be turned into many more thousand dollars if it's going through an intermediary who's doing the work already, as opposed to just cutting someone a check. And I know that's the tension. Like, right. there's like, sort of a, like, like, just give us the money and we'll move on. And that actually may work for some, but I can tell you it won't work for others. Right. So we live in this environment where everyone, I think, we just need to stay in a very active and daily conversation. I'm really grateful to see some community advocacy organizations get some cash from the foundation that are immediately, they've been in our space, they have an office in the church, they're talking to people one-on-one. I'm having a lot of conversations with both the residents and with the community organizers. I've even done some like target runs to get individual items that individuals needed that were unique and weren't supplied just with the donations. So there's a lot of very custom one-on-one engagement. And I think... I think that it's just very challenging in terms of meeting everyone's need in the timeline that they've, they, they would like to have that. And so as long as we can stay in this, I am confident that everyone's doing the best they can, and I'm confident that we'll get these uh, families housed. We're chatting with Pastor Dan Collison. He is with the First Covenant Church in Minneapolis. And again, it is just a couple blocks from U.S. Bank Stadium right next to WCCO Radio as well. Uh, the church is doing an amazing job. They have about 60 or so people from the Drake that are still basically living there as they try and sort through all of these issues that um, you're talking about. It's, you know, it, it when you, I hope that this is somewhat of a reality check. I know that phrase gets overused here uh, about what exactly is the status of, of people who are in transitional housing in, in Minnesota, because I do think, you know, one of the things I did when I, uh, you know, I, the day I spoke to you, I did reach out to the Minneapolis Public Schools and just say, well, how are you going to handle it? These kids are not there at the Drake. And, and how many, you know, there, there are 50 plus kids who are no longer at the Drake who got to get to school on Monday. Right. The school starts back up on Monday and they said, no, no, we're, we're on top of it. We, we've got, you know, wherever they are, if they're out in Bloomington, we'll get them bused to their school that they were at before. So at minimum, they don't have to change schools. Everything else has happened around them, but they can still go back to that same school, which, I mean, how important is that? I mean, just, I would just think monumental. And so they're doing that. And I said, well, how many other kids? I said, that, that's a tall task to suddenly have to do that. For, for, you know, 50-plus kids, and they said, you know, it, it is, it's difficult, and, and what's very difficult is that all these children went through the, this trauma, and so we've got counselors at the schools, and I said, well, how many other kids are in this position where they're in this transitional or homeless situation where, where they have to be getting, getting special busing to get them to the school that they've been going to? 2,500, yep. 2,500 children are, are basically homeless in the Minneapolis public schools, and and they are getting these kinds of services already. This is another uh, another fifty on top of that. 
Uh, and it's it's amazing and horrifying and, and sad to think of that, that we are providing those services and that that's just the way things are. Uh, and it's it's troubling, I think, at the very least. It is. And this is some of the space that I do professionally, not just as a pastor, but in terms of advocating for many housing options and engaging those who face homelessness downtown. So I have been aware of those young people who are in schools and you know, many of the professionals that are working on getting more affordable housing sort of identified multiple pieces of this. Federal policy shifted many, many years ago um, that sort of moved public housing and support for public housing off the primary agenda. That created a crunch on one level. Uh, actual wages and income are not, raise, are, not, are not rising as fast as inflation, the cost of living. And then when there's intersectionality pieces where there's been some generational poverty through families, like there's just a lot of people dropping into some form of homelessness. And, you know, those high schoolers or those those individuals who are homeless in Minneapolis public school, I mean, some are couch hopping, some are staying with friends, some are in, you know, great programs like YouthLink, which is downtown that provides transitional housing. But there's just not enough resources. People aren't able to earn enough money to be able to afford the housing. And then, of course, it's a competitive market. We've got a lot of people moving to the Twin Cities. You know, the gaps between professional salaries and those who don't have education and salaries is big. Right. And so the challenges are, are, are really, really big on a systems level. Uh, that That's a big deal. So I'm also trying to keep my brain like, what can we do now? Like the church work with Community Housing Development Corporation. I don't know if you saw it, but we're building a tax credit subsidized affordable housing on the site. Um, you know, the church is a partner in it, the affordable housing company, um, Community Housing Development Corporation. They are the developer. They put up a lot of money, solved a lot of challenges, and there's going to be 169 new, new units coming online late this April. We've been handing out connecting brochures for some of the Drake residents, and it would be a thrill to see some of the Drake residents qualify for those homes and be able to move into those. And uh, so we understand and are trying to do our best to use our land and leverage it and share it to have more right. subsidized housing. Okay. And, and again, for those who want to donate or help out the, the victims of the Drake, you, you're saying really cash donations to either the Minneapolis Foundation or the Red Cross is the best way to go. That's correct. Okay. They're on the front line. They're the ones who are distributing to intermediaries. And they're, I'm, what I'm impressed with so much with the Minneapolis Foundation is that uh, there's, like, for instance, the, the, the grant officer who I've worked with, she's there every day. She's constantly checking in. She's talking to residents. She's at the Multiple Agent Resource Center today and yesterday. And they are really close to the residents and they are engaged in listening, paying attention, and giving grants to organizations that are qualified and that are able to quickly get that money into the hands of residents. So by the way, like I, I don't remember what the total was. It was close to $20,000, like literally cash and cards, like every day to anyone who needs it. The foundation has been on site. Wow. And so uh, I just have been super impressed with how they've been very, I mean, just very engaged in, in, in doing whatever they can to, to help at least uh, well, I, I'm certain in both locations, but I can only speak with the first coming location, like very okay. present, and that money is flowing directly to the residents. Right. Uh, yes, there's pieces of it going to professional organizations, some going to first covenant uh, to keep it, you know, all like sustainable for a 24-7 living, 
But I just want to say that money is going to them. It will go to them. Everyone's got an eye on it. Everyone's highly accountable. And and I guarantee you five months from now or six months from now, when we're looking back at this, we'll be able to tell some important stories of how residents were able to find new housing. And also some of the challenges that just sort of snapshot it. We have problems here. We have yes. to work on this. Yes. I mean, 2,500 children already in that situation. This adds another 50. Yep. Uh, it, it's a, that's a staggering figure. Uh, Pastor Dan, I do want to just bring up one one point. You may have heard Dan Collison's name before. Um, you actually, and your church is doing such a wonderful job with this, you actually were in the news <laughs> earlier this year, or I suppose it was last year. No, it was, well, yeah, 2019. <laughs> 2019, um, uh, because you're, you were, and I, I, you know, I think people who read the stories felt thought that you might have like lost your church but but that's not the case because you have been supportive and are supportive uh, of gay marriage and what happened there and I, I'm so glad that you are still with your church and able to step up in this way and help so many people yeah that was a really dramatic moment I've been uh, the lead pastor of first covenant for ten and a half years and when I arrived ten and a half years ago the congregation was in crisis and several commitments were made as we got going. One was 100% reinvention, courage to follow through on commitments to be a downtown congregation. And then what we learned quickly was our building had to be used for community good. So we committed all three of those, and they always sound great from a distance. But then when you get into the direct, what does that mean, that's when it gets challenging. And so this conversation about supporting our gay members and gay marriage and equality, the human rights around LGBTQ issues, was it was just forefront. And it was hard, right? Because over think of 10 and a half years, right? It wasn't legal to be married 10 and a half years ago. Uh, there were a lot of conversations going on in religious circles, in civic circles, in, in community circles. And so what we experienced was, a lot of intentional conversations, a lot of love and care and concern that this really is a human rights issue and it really is a social justice issue. And the church had the courage to say, yes, we stand for all issues of social justice, including this newer idea of supporting gay marriage. Well, the denomination that we used to be a part of, the Evangelical Covenant Church, had a long history, actually, of letting people disagree even disagree with uh, uh, established or discerned positions, and then still stay in it. And while it was always a struggle, they tended to do that. And so for five years, we were able to continue that dialogue. But then there were some new folks elected. There was kind of a lot of anxiety and frustration in terms of not wanting there to be ambiguity about this. And so sadly, at the annual meeting last summer, uh, the elected leaders of the denomination and all the delegates voted uh, to remove my license. They voted to remove First Covenant from the church. Many of us who were from the covenant tradition would argue they changed dramatically who they were as a denomination. The good news is that First Covenant Church in Minneapolis— And you're there! Right. <laughs> That's the good news, and you're here to help everybody. Right. Well, that's... We're there, and we own the building, we own our name, and so we just kind of yeah. keep moving forward. With sort of, well, I call it a measured sense of freedom and well, joy for the work. Well, we're very happy, and I think a lot of people who've seen the remarkable work you've done, you know, on a regular basis, but also in this crisis, are happy as well. Thank you so much, Pastor Dan Collison, for joining us.
You're very welcome. Uh-oh. It's a privilege to have this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.